All right. Why don't you turn to Philippians chapter 4, verse um, 10 through 14. The message is entitled, Ministry and Finances. Paul has um, told the Philippians not to live in constant state of anxiety and worry, as well as to control their minds by meditating on what has virtue and is praiseworthy to maintain peace with God. And this is for life and fellowship with the God of peace, and it's constantly that he says that. He also told them right thinking results in right living. This is an incredible epistle as we come towards this last chapter. Now, Paul, notice, is going to illustrate both these exhortations by his own example regarding finances for life and ministry here from verse 10 to verse 20. The Bible deals with all issues. Uh, many times pastors don't deal with the issues because they don't go verse by verse, but here you have a very important part of ministry and life that Paul deals with. Paul was completely dependent on Christ Jesus. Paul was not biting his nails or begging, ever. Paul was not thinking evil of those who didn't give finances to him. This entire section deals with the financial gift from the Philippians by the hand of Epaphroditus that is found in verse 18 of this chapter. We already covered them earlier in the chapters and how he almost came near to death. So we want to look at the heart of Paul regarding finances and it's characterized by three things. Let me read here verse 10 through 14. He says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again, um, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regards to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be a base and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ Jesus, who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. And so the heart of Paul regarding finances is characterized by the following. First, you have the appreciation of Paul for the finances in verse 10. Then you have the perception of Paul about the finances in verse 11 and 12. And thirdly, the commendation by Paul for the finances in verses 13 and 14. So let's begin here with the appreciation of Paul for the finances, verse 10. Notice the Apostle Paul recognized the faithfulness of the Lord. Listen to his words. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Paul rejoiced in the Lord for the supply of his finances, not people. Very important. The entire passage is void of the word thanks, but the entire context is a loving expression of thanksgiving. The word rejoice 
is in the error's passive placing his reader at the time the gift was presented by Epaphroditus to Paul at, when he rejoiced in chapter 4, verse 18. So this particular grammatical structure, the way it's in the Greek, it, it takes the person when they're reading it, putting them right back when he received and rejoiced at that time. The Greek has different tenses. Now, this is the epistle of joy, as you know, for Paul knew he was in prison at Rome, and they also knew it. And Paul told them that he was there by God's appointment, and the gospel was being preached, having the mind of Christ and under his provisions. That's how the letter opens up. So he's not at the Hyatt, he's not at the, you know, fancy hotel, he's in a Roman Mamertine prison. Now, this is the last time joy and rejoicing appears in the letter. The joy is of Paul, not the Philippians. He's the one that has the bad, not them at this point. Notice the word greatly. It means immensely or, and appears only this time in this form. The expression uh, a megabucks is familiar to us. It comes, the word comes from it. It's meaning that that individual has lots of money. If he has megabucks, we say he had a lot of money. That's the root word here, mega, immensely. The rejoicing of Paul was in the Lord, notice, due to the fact that his trust was in the Lord for his finances, regardless of how he would provide for him. He left that in God's department. The Roman Empire, as you know, did not care much about prisoners and didn't provide adequate food or care. Often family and friends would have to go and meet those needs or they would just starve. This is also true in third world countries. Nicaragua, Colombia, different places like that, even Mexico. Now look at verse 10 still. The Apostle Paul recognized the faithfulness of the Philippians now. That now at last your care for me has flourished again. So Paul rejoiced in the Lord that now at last their care for him had revived again. He used the word care, which means to direct or exercise the mind, to entertain or interest oneself. In other words, there's an affection towards one another. There's a concern as you would for a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, a son, or a daughter. There is that sense of, of love for each other. The context is an affectionate way towards Paul in the durative present, the Greek Scholar tells us they always had Paul in mind. In other words, there wasn't a time they didn't have him in mind. They always had him in mind. Just like when you have someone who is maybe uh, away for a long time, maybe they're on duty overseas, whatever, you know, your mind is there, you're, 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 you're concerned about them. The word is um, used throughout the letter to communicate oneness of mind as a servant like Christ, resulting in unity. Remember, the Philippians lacked unity. Yoda, Syntyche, they were at odds. The word is used 12 times in the letter. Paul used it for his oneness of mind and love for them in chapter 1, verse 7. Notice he also used a very descriptive word for, to describe their care and interest for him. The word flourished. It's the indicative eras active. That means to sprout or blossom. 
The only time it appears in the New Testament is right here. And the word in the Septuagint, whenever you read um, uh, some commentaries that have a LXX, the Roman numerals, 50, 10, 10. That's the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew writings into the Greek. And the word is used in Septuagint of trees in the winter that conceal their strength till spring uh, uh, would come by. And it sprouts out again. That's the word. Now, Paul was saying that the Philippians, through their finances, had once again been God's answer to his trust and dependency on God. They were the branches and the Lord was divine, even as Jesus said in John 15, 1 through 4. He said this was not the first time by using the word again. Notice that. The Philippians gave to Paul when he departed from Macedonia, if you remember, no other church participated in Philippians 4.15. Tell us. The Philippians had given to Paul two times when they, uh, when he was at Thessalonica. He says it there in four fifteen also. By the way, Paul was earning his living, if you remember, in Thessalonica, as a tent maker. That is basically the way God provided for Paul in ministry. You find that in Acts eighteen three, twenty thirty four. He speaks about it to 1 Thessalonians 2.9 and 2 Thessalonians 3.8. So Paul worked with his own hands. He provided for those people. And yet the Thessalonians, the Philippians and Thessalonians had provided for him once or twice. And he was thankful for that. But um, Paul didn't beg and Paul didn't send letters out and Paul didn't do that. Interesting. The Philippians now had given to Paul once again as he was in prison in Rome. Notice Paul and the Philippians had a long, loving relationship. They were in the heart of Paul while in chains in defense of the gospel, as he told them in the opening chapter, verse 7 and 8. They were concerned about his imprisonment, and he responded that some of the Praetorium Guard had Come to Christ. They thought the gospel was over. Paul's in jail. He says, you know, some are preaching out of contention. Some because, you know, they're, they're, they're behind the Lord. But I don't really care as long as the gospel is preached. Amazing. So they were to know that through their prayers, God would deliver Paul, he told them. In chapter 1, verse 19. In fact, they had sent Epaphroditus. Verse 18, and then also chapter 2, verse 25. He was sick, he almost died. And now Paul was sending them back because they were worried about Epaphroditus. Notice the Apostle Paul recognized the Philippians' blamelessness, the end of verse 10 there. Though you surely did care, but lacked opportunity. Paul confessed their love for him Though you did care. The same word as at the beginning of the verse. They were of the mind towards Paul and minding his best interests, like-minded. He spoke about being Christ-like. Let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 5 on. Remember? 
the very, the very help of Epaphroditus and the finances were evident of his like-mindedness and theirs. So Paul cleared them of any procrastination by declaring their lack of opportunity, but does not identify it. So he wasn't bitter, he wasn't complaining. He knew they loved him. It could be that they had no one to go to Rome at the time. Travel was real difficult in those days. It could be that they had um, financial hardship themselves. You remember that whole area was war-torn and they were the poorest. Uh, In fact, when Paul took an offering for the poor saints of Jerusalem, he didn't even want to take the offering because they're so poor and they got all mad at Paul. He says, hey, listen, you take it. You know, the Jews gave us our Messiah. We want to give them a little bit of what we have. And they were the greatest example of giving out of their poverty. The churches of Macedonia were very, very poor. Again, Second Corinthians 8, 1 and 2 tells us that. And some say that Paul was reproving them for their uh, tardiness by the phrase, now at last. If so, then Paul's declaration, though you surely did care, but lacked opportunity would not make any sense. Of course, he's not rebuking them. He's not complaining. Careful observation in the context will help us to arrive at the right interpretation. If we read it, as we read any letter, you have introduction, you have the body, you have a conclusion, and it flows. Now, notice Paul communicated his great appreciation at their generosity due to their uh, own hardship and perhaps even difficulty sending finances to him. The word opportunity comes from the word kairos, meaning a specific time. It's used for a week, a birthday, a season, a summer, a winter period. Um, Seasonal would be a good word. The indicative perfect middle voice indicates their difficult poverty had continued. That's where they lived. The Apostle Paul knew that whatever the reason, God was in control. And the timing of God would be according to his own season and never late. Galatians 4, 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the Son made of a woman under the law. Right on time. He sent the Son right on time. When there was only one language in the world, Greek. The roads were cleared. They could travel. No war. Peace. God sent his Son right on time to preach the gospel all over the world. Wow. God knows everything. He's in control. You know, there was a guy named George Mueller. I mentioned him before. Once he told of his orphans that, um, um, that he had, that he told them that God was going to provide dinner. Yet nothing was on the table as they gathered only to hear a knock on the door. And the milkman asked Mr. Mueller if they might be able to use all the milk and cheese because the cart had broken down and would end up spoiling. Some would look at it, well, you know, good thing it happened like that. It happened? You pick up a book of George Mueller, a little book like that, Men of Faith. How he provided, God provided through him for all the orphans that he cared for and everything. Never begging, never sending out letters, just trusting God. Incredible. 
how we in the ministry have um, witnessed and learned to appreciate God's faithfulness and perfect timing regarding finances through the years. God providing the deposit and purchase of this building without any pressure, no pledges, no cookie sales, no car washes, no begging, no letters sent out. The ongoing monthly bills and yearly expenses according to his riches in Christ Jesus, as he says in Philippians 4.19. His goodness. The construction of the gym when the woody earthquake hit a year after we bought it in 87, October 1st. And yet God, in his wisdom, knew that if he didn't crack that building, we wouldn't build a gym. So he had to crack the building so we could tear it down and build a gym in 94. And when um, we started in May, ended up in December, when we were done, it was paid off cash. No letters, no begging, no nothing. Do I say this to both? Do I say this to exalt myself or anything? No, just to tell you God's faithfulness. That's all. I have nothing to do with this. This is what God has done. It's amazing. How we appreciate the faithfulness of God's people to be obedient to their opportunity to give what belongs to God for the work of ministry and the proclamation of the gospel. God works it out. Giving on the first day of the week, as 1 Corinthians 16.2 says, giving by recognition that our giving is a calling, it's called grace, the work of God in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6 through 7. It's a grace. Giving according to what we have, not what we don't have. Not being at ease while others are burdened, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8.12-13, but never by pressure. Never. Giving not grudgingly or compulsion, but cheerfully, hilarious from the heart, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. We always tell people, if you can't give hilariously, please don't pollute our offering. <laughs> God's not broke. He owns the cattle on every hill. I would say that we can appreciate this. Only if we are praying for it to God in secret as the leaders, the elders, and pastors. And then we see God provide openly, as Jesus says in Matthew 6, 4 through 8. We're going to be getting to chapter 6 of Matthew pretty soon. Only if God confirms his will by opening doors and providing what we're asking in secret, as Matthew 7, 7 through 8 says. Only if we look to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think according to the power that works in us, as Ephesians 3.20 says. It's the greatest uh, witness you can give to people around you as a Christian to trust God, depend on God, be a hard worker, and be faithful to God. One of the greatest witness you can give to people. So this was the um, appreciation of Paul for the finances. Notice, secondly, in verse 11 and 12, the perception of Paul about his finances. In verse 11, uh, the Apostle Paul declared that he didn't see himself in poverty. Amazing. Listen to his word. Not that I speak in regards of need. So Paul was not making any appeal, as I said, or declaration to anyone of his needs. 
The word I is emphatic. On my part, this was not his style of ministry. He was not that type of a preacher teacher. His joy was not in the gift, but in their concern and their improved state, that they had gotten a little better. He was rejoicing for them. He, in fact, had refused to take finances from the Corinthians, if you remember. Though he had the right in order that the gospel not be charged in 1 Corinthians 9. But he never exercised it. He didn't reject or, or refuse anybody else, but he says, God told me not to do it. For him, he said no. Wow. Notice Paul used a very specific word here to describe what his financial condition was. The word uh, need, which means falling short, penury, or poverty. The word appears only two times in this form. The other time it is used for the widow who put in two mites and gave more than all because she gave of her poverty, of her whole livelihood, Mark twelve forty four. That's the same word. Paul the Apostle was attesting to God's faithfulness once again to always provide for his needs. Yet counted all things lost for the riches of Christ, he said in Philippians 3, 7 through 11. Notice the Apostle Paul declared the reason for his proclamation. For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Incredible statement. The proclamation was Paul's personal practice. Again, the pronoun I is emphatic in the Greek. The apostle used the pronoun I eight times from verse 10 to 14. You think he's a Mexican. Ay, ay, ay. Eight times. Notice the apostle is giving witness to his ministry lifestyle. The process of his learning has been through time. Underline the word learned. It means to learn by use of practice, habit, or accustomed. The tense implies from conversion to the present day, an indicative heiress active. In other words, Paul entered into the, this condition at conversion. As has been his process of learning, he did not always know this. When Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus Road, he learned it from that point on. But before that, he didn't know this. He didn't live like this. He didn't look at ministry like that. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Benjamite, circumcised the eighth day. His contemporaries, he smoked them. Nobody could keep up with them. Hmm. The word content is a stoic word, which means an inward self-sufficient. See, from external circumstances and things based on being frugal and a steward. So the Stoics used this word as one who was a good steward and he didn't need to depend on anybody else and he was sufficient enough to always help somebody else too. That's the word. The, he uses the same word in two different form, in different forms two other times. 
The first one is in 2 Corinthians 9, 8. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always having, there it is, all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. He's quoting Proverbs eleven twenty four there. The other time is in 1 Timothy 6, 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, don't confuse contentment with complacency. Contentment means that you're a hard worker, you're thankful, and you are satisfied with what God has provided you. Complacency means you just don't really care about working hard and you just want to get by. Don't confuse the two. Paul was a hard worker. And he provided for others. He wanted to do for others what sometimes others could not do for him. So the apostle's self-sufficiency was that he depended on God's leading alone to be in line with his call and service and not go beyond it and make adjustments, if you will, as he needed. He makes this very clear in Second Corinthians 3, 5. Chapter 10, 14 through 16. Philippians 4, 13. He'll say, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. You tighten your belt. You make those adjustments. You, you're a good steward of it. That's what he did. Having food and raiment, let us be therefore content, First Timothy 6, 8 says in the pastoral epistles. Be content with such things as you have, Hebrews 13, 5 says. The idea is not pride, but the faithfulness of God to provide and faithful stewardship to live within one's means. Today, too many people live beyond their means. That's why they get in trouble. And you've got all the dishonest people on the radio and television telling you, consolidate all your, your bills, you know, and you don't have to pay all your debt. Don't let the, uh, the, the financial companies deceive you. Oh, really? Is your debt and they're deceiving you to pay it? Wow. So they're going to negotiate for you to pay 50% of your debt and then I'm going to pay the rest. Because that's who pays it, the rest of the nation. When people don't pay their full debt or when they call bankruptcy. Somebody has to pay it and the nation pays for it. You see? It's amazing today the day we're living today in. There's no integrity, no honesty, no, 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 no sense of responsibility. Notice the Apostle Paul declared his financial contentment by way of explanation in verse 12. So he elaborates on it. Paul knew how to be flexible and make adjustments financially. I know how to be a base and I know how to abound. So he knew how to be a base. The word means to make low or humble oneself. The tense is the present middle voice done by the individual continuously. The middle voice always speaks of the person doing it himself. They have to be a doer of it. He counted all things, all his accomplishments as a pile of manure, he said in chapter 2, verse 8, before Christ. Wow. The word know there means to perceive by the senses, meaning he was sensitive to the situation. 
The tense again is the perfect active both times by the same word. Paul knew how to live humbly even though he came from a wealthy background. He counted all but dung again in chapter 3 verse 8. Paul could do without and not murmur, he said in Philippians 2.14. Notice he knew how to abound. Means to exceed a fixed number, to superabound or to be in excess. He has used it in chapter 1, verse 9, verse 26, and 418. The double I know makes it emphatic. Paul knew God's excess was not just for him, and as God's steward, it would last him until God provided more. That confidence in God, as well as the stewardship on this end. Paul worked as a tent maker, as I said, so he wouldn't burn anybody. Wouldn't be a big bother to anybody. Acts 18, 2 Thessalonians 3. And Paul knew how to be flexible regarding the location. Notice what he says, in everywhere. And in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Everywhere, in every place and location that God sent him. Be it to Jerusalem and the Jews, be it to Antioch and the Gentiles. In all things, every situation, be it to be beat or imprisoned, be it to be a uh, as a Gentile or a Jew. Incredible man, Paul. In every place and in every situation, he had learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Once again, the word learn now is different than the other one. It appears only one time in the New Testament. The word means to initiate into one time here in the Greek. To initiate into or accustom one to a thing by practice. Once again, it's used by the Stoics. The perfect tense implies Paul initiated. He remained so committed that he learned that and he didn't waver from it. When we see a person who gets up every morning and he does certain things, he cleans his windshield in the morning and he, and he does this, does that. And you see, and, or you see your son or your daughter, they're very regimented. You see, they're disciplined. They just have a routine. They, they know what they have to do. And this was with Paul in the spirit. He understood that. Paul learned by personal initiation, intimate acquaintance, with the ways of God by submitting to the will of God. Paul had no complaint about God. He had learned to be full. That word to be full means and is used for an animal that is stuffed, satiated. <laughs> That's the word. Wow. He learned to be hungry, to suffer want of food, to be unsatiated. He learned to abound. 
to exceed a fixed number. He learned to suffer need, to be in want or lack. All of these are in the present tense. Amazing. We read some of the uh, sufferings of Paul and the imprisonments and the shipwrecks and and being chased out of cities and all. And they stoned him at Lystra there and everybody took, got around him and they thought he was dead and he was dead. And they all looked and he got up and shook himself off. And what are you doing, Paul? I'm going back in. Wow. Amazing. You know, Alexander the Great, we are told being upon his deathbed, commanded that when he was carried out forth to the grave, his hands should not be wrapped, as was usual in the grave cloths, but should be left outside the briar, so that they were empty, that there was nothing in them. He was born to one empire, and the conqueror of another, the possessor while he lived, of two worlds, of the east and the west, and of the treasures of both, yet now when he was dead, could retain not even the smallest portion of these treasures. The poorest beggar, and he, and he was at length upon unequal terms. You see, when a person dies, they leave everything. The guy who has a hundred dollars in the bank and the guy who has a million. They all leave the same. Everything. They can take nothing with them. What is your attitude towards your financial state? Do you um, begrudge others for what they have and even covet what they have? Or to put these things to death, Colossians 3, 5 says. That's the way we used to be in the world. Do you think um, life consists of the abundance of the things you possess? Jesus spoke about that in Luke twelve fifteen. That we're not to do so. What is your um, contentment based on? If it's not God's provisions and the fact that we take nothing with us, then it has to be wrong. First Timothy 6, 6 through 10 warns us about the ensnarements and the trappings of uh, wealth that bring destruction to many. Nothing wrong with money in itself. It's what money does to people. Everybody needs money. We have to pay rent, buy a car, different things. But when you are driven by money and by the power and the things that money can do, it opens more bad doors than good doors. That's the problem with money. What kind of steward are you of the money God has given to you? Are you gracious to others, as Proverbs speaks many times? Malachi speaks about robbing God, Malachi 3, 8 through 10. When we went through Malachi, we looked at that. It's important that we live on a budget within our means, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 8. So whatever is your end result of your monthly pay, then make sure you don't live above it. Some people, let's just say, 
make two, three thousand dollars, whatever. You, 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 you set the amount. But they spend more than they bring home. That's no good. So you got to live within your means. And often people get beyond that, they get in debt, and then they get in trouble. And you're shifting from here to there. God wants you to live within your means. Put something away. You know, if you just put away $100 a month, beginning at age 20 to age 50, at 10% return, you would have $226,000 at 50. A total investment of being 36000 If you doubled it $200, you would have 450000 If you tripled it 300 a month, you would have $678,000. You would have more money than, certainly Social Security is not going to do it for you. <laughs> if you could put that money away, you'd be better steward of it. <laughs> but they won't let you have it. But it's that consistency. Every month, every week, or whatever you do. A little away. It all adds up. This was the uh, perception of Paul about his finances. Helps us out. Notice thirdly here in verse 13 and 14, you have the commendation by Paul for the finances. In verse 13, the apostle Paul declared that his confidence was in Christ. Notice that. The outrageous statement is, I can do all things. Wow. This implies trust and commitment on the sufficiency of Christ for all situations of life. Not a proud statement of, of human potential. And Paul makes this very clear as you go through 2 Corinthians 3, Colossians 1, and many other passages. His trust and confidence was in Christ. The immediate context is finances for life in ministry, the present active tense. The person or the reason here being is that Paul was only doing the things God called him to do and thereby had learned by practice and initiation into the ways of the will of God to be content. So it's always important as a Christian that I do only what God tells me to do. I go where God tells me to go. I live by the means that God provides for me and I'll never get myself in trouble. Many people buy out of emotion, impulse. They buy that, well, you know what, this check is coming or this is going to happen and then it doesn't happen. And then they're sucking eggs. But you think through those things. Good steward. Living content. Christ was his life. As he said in chapter 1 verse 21. Christ was his mind in chapter 2 verse 5. Christ was his goal in chapter 3 verse 10. And Christ was his strength in chapter 4 verse 13. Notice the word all there. It cannot be limited only to finances, but in principle, to all things God calls us to do. And that's important. All that God wills and permits to come into my life, even as Job, God permitted that. God allowed that. God tested Job. It is a great encouragement to all believers and those 
called to ministry, that they look to the Lord, that they don't pressure people, that they don't beg from God's people, that they don't present or represent God as a beggar or like he's broke. Very important. The necessary channel is noticed through Christ. This implies position and rest. The word through is in the sphere and in relationship to Christ united. Therefore, Paul saw himself as an instrument only. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me in John fourteen six. I am the door in John ten nine. I am the vine, you're the branches in John fifteen, one through eight. Not the mere expression of his name as some magical formulas, Simon the sorcerer, but a personal union experience in relationship to Christ. The infinite source of power, listen to him, who strengthens me. All things through Christ who strengthens me. The source of power is not an option but a necessity to fulfill the call of God in our lives. Again, the present active tense. There is no way that I could even imagine having accomplished and done all that God has allowed me to do in the last 45 years on my own strength or my own wisdom or my own plotting. I could have never done it very very clear to me we're to be strong in the Lord Ephesians 6.10 says we're to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus 2 Timothy 2.1 this is all that God desires to provide for us everything in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge Colossians 2.3 says we receive this power by the Holy Spirit who is the comforter. Jesus spoke about him in chapter 14, 15, and 16 of John the night before he was uh, crucified to the apostles. The Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. Jesus told the disciples to tarry in Jerusalem today were endued with power from on high in Acts 1.8. The believer is strengthened in the inner man, Paul says in Ephesians 3.16. And Paul's strength for his infirmity in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. God said, my grace is sufficient. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Zechariah 4, 6, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Now look at 14. The apostle Paul declared his compliment to the Philippians. Their godly deed, nevertheless, you have done well. Wow. Paul makes sure, once again, to not be misunderstood by the Philippians as if he were ungrateful, as he already said in verse 10. The word done means to, uh, to be the author of a deed. The word well, callous, means... What is done rightly, excellent, noble. The same word is used of the requirements for elders 
ruling well their own house in 1 Timothy 3, 4. The error is active, is continuous. We're not to stop. We're to be known for good works, noble works. Notice Paul tells them God was also working through them as instruments for the gospel. The church was 10 years old at this time. Paul is saying every believer is to edify one another. This is right. Now notice their great compassion. You shared in my distress, he says. They share with one who taught them, as Galatians 6, 6 says we should do. The word share, sunkononios, from koinonia, means to be a partners in fellowship with. It's a very rich word. They had been involved from the beginning, a joint participation in the gospel, starting with Lydia in Philippians uh, chapter 1, 4 through 5. Now you remember that the church was established and the women there at Philippi, right? By the riverside. They were praying for Paul. Chapter 1, verse 19. They were the ones who had sent Epaphroditus, who again had nearly died in the service, as chapter 2, 25 to 30 told us. They entered into that fellowship of his distress or suffering by sending Epaphroditus with this gift. The travel was very dangerous in those days. It was long. The word distress is a word that is, means pressing pressure or a burden. It's used for the widows in difficulties in James one twenty-seven. The word is used of the great tribulation in Revelation 2.23. Hmm. In 1923, a group of the world's most successful financiers met at the um, Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. Collectively, these tycoons controlled more wealth than there was in the United States Treasury. And for years, newspapers and magazines had been printing their success stories and urging the youth of the nation to follow their examples. 27 years later, let's see what happened to them, 1950. Charles Schwab, the president of the largest independent steel company, lived on borrowed money the last five years of his life and died penniless. Arthur Kooten, the greatest wheat spectator, died abroad insolvent. Richard Whitney, the president of the New York Stock Exchange was released some time ago from Sing Sing. I'm not saying he was singing. I'm saying from Sing Sing. Albert Fall, the member of the president's cabinet, was pardoned from prison so he could die at home. Jesse Livermore, the greatest bear on Wall Street, committed suicide. Leon Frazier, the president of the Bank of International Settlement committed suicide. Ivar Krudinger, the head of the world's greatest monopoly, 
committed suicide. All of these men had learned how to make money, but not one of them had learned how to live. Wow. Much of the church is exalting preachers and teachers who are saying that it's your divine right to be healthy and wealthy. <laughs> Paul says, get away from them. <laughs> wow. They talk about your seed faith, plant your seed faith, and just interesting, they want you to plant it in their church. And they're the only wealthy ones. Listen to what Peter says about false teachers in Second Peter chapter 2. Verse 15, he says, They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Verse 17, These are wells without water, clouds carried by the tempest, from whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Verse 18, for when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. They deceive Christians. 19. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. Verse 20, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I can only be a Christian. Listen, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than at the beginning. That can never be a non-believer. That's a Christian who's been deceived. And I've been around for about 43, going on 44 years. And I've seen a lot of this. People who are right on. People who are used by God tremendously. They used to sit where you sit. Hmm. Today, as from the beginning of the church, we are to be involving good works of God. As he directs us individually. As God directs you, you don't have to come and ask me permission. And corporately, as God allows us to do different things, like we do medical outreaches, we have concerts, different things. But there's many of you who I, I just, um, you guys encourage me. You guys are a great example. You guys, God just tells you to go somewhere, you pick up, you, you take your vacation, you go down to, to Acapulco and do some missions, you go down to wherever and you do it, you go down to Mexico and you do this, and you know, you don't sound the horn, you don't do nothing, you just do what God tells you to do. That's so good. That's great. I love it. At times, um, these may involve personal costs, though, in helping someone. And, um, and so often people don't want to do that because of that. Isn't it interesting, whenever somebody finds a need, they come and tell you so you can meet it? Listen, if God shows, real simple principle, if God shows you a need... Go meet it. Don't tell anybody. Don't be an organizer. Be an agonizer and let it cost you. Go. Simple. We are to do good, especially to those of the household of faith, Galatians 6.10 says. 
some things we are to do. Let me give you some, and I'll close with these. Second Thessalonians 3.13 But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Just doing good. First Timothy 6.18-19 Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. He's speaking about those who have greater means of finances. Hebrews 13, 15, and 16 says, Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, but do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices... God is well pleased. You know how you and I used to live in the world. It was the world of me, myself, and I, the trinity of darkness. And of course, we help out those that we kind of like, and even then we want to see, well, you know, I want to make sure I get the biggest piece of the pie. But we're supposed to be different now in the Lord. And we're to be doing what God directs us to do. Not what a pastor tells you to do, you go to God. You let Him direct you. You be obedient to Him and you'll do well. This was um, the commendation by Paul for the finances. What a great example Paul is, huh? Incredible. And so this was the heart of Paul regarding finances and the ministry, really. Characterized by these three things, the appreciation of Paul for the finances, the perception of Paul about his finances, and the commendation by Paul for the finances. It's always nice to say thank you. It's always appreciated. It's not necessary, but it's nice. Lord, thank you for your love, your goodness. We thank you. We pray, Lord, you deal with our hearts, and we thank you for your word. And, Father, how faithful you've been to us through the years, Lord, in every way. And I thank you for your people, for their obedience and their love for you. And, Lord, how you use them tremendously in the outreaches and being here in ministry and everything. Lord, we thank you. And so, Lord, we pray tonight you would speak to the heart of those who are here and those who are looking over the Internet and, and the radio throughout the world right now. If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior as you're praying, then God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Or maybe you're out there somewhere in the world, maybe Russia, maybe China, maybe Mexico. If you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God says you need to repent of your sin. You need to call upon his name. Jesus died for your sin and rose from the dead. And if you do that, he says he'll forgive you of your sins and give you eternal life. And he'll become your savior. And he will direct your life. It's called repentance. If this is your desire or decision, right where you sit or wherever you are right now, this is your prayer to God. And he's going to save you and forgive you right now for all your sins. You can repeat after me. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. 
give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.